right. Hey, welcome everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I love looking out and seeing all your smiling faces. I'm so over the whole mask thing. I'm just telling you. I'm glad. Now, as Pastor Gabe said, I want to just be clear on this. If you are one of those who still would just feel more comfortable, or maybe you're just not quite there, or maybe you won't feel comfortable at all, you're still welcome here. And we want to be respectful of that, right? All of us, even those who are over the mask thing, we want to be respectful of those who are not quite in that place yet for a number of reasons. Personally, I've seen many times over the past 10 years in ministry where I like, I wish that person was wearing a mask because they're coughing all over everything. So let's use common sense and let's be courteous to one another wherever we are in that spectrum. But for me personally, I'm so excited that things are starting to open up. I was at Sam's Club yesterday, went in without a mask on, and it felt so weird. It really, it was weird, but I'm, I'm happy to get, to get back to normal. So I want to fill up all these seats. So if you're out there at home and you're going like, I wonder if, yes, the answer is yes. We have seats for you here, and we want to get you back in here. So all right, enough of that. I don't even know why I went off on that. It just feels really good. I'm super excited, despite the fact that it's kind of a gloomy day sort of outside. And really, to be honest, I'd rather be at home napping right now in front of the fireplace. But um, I have a message that I think the Lord gave me, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. And yes, I said excited, but I just can't help it. I, I really am excited to bring this message in Job. So if you're new, if you're out there online, maybe you haven't heard any of our messages before or you're brand new in-house, welcome, first of all. So glad that you guys are here. Um, but we are teaching through a series. It's just called A Study in the Life of Job. It's called Blameless because that's exactly how God declares Job to be. In the opening chapters, God says Job is blameless. But there's a lot, a lot that we can learn from that. So if you're here and you're like, oh, man. Job. It's about patience and suffering and trials and all this. It is. But there's so much to learn from it. And what I believe um, is that there's, not only is there so much to learn, any word of scripture, there's a lot to learn from that. It's only in the word of God. It's only put down because God ordained it to be there, which means it's there for a reason. So there's something we can learn from all of it. But Job in specific I believe that the whole underlying message of the book of Job is that God not only can, but will use the trials that we go through in our daily lives to elevate us to a place where we wouldn't willingly go on our own, okay? Some scripture talks about it being training. When you're training, it's, it's never fun to train. It's painful. It's sweaty. Nobody wants to do it, but it produces a better result. And when we look at Job, he's going through some pain, and it's not of his own doing. It's not that he's done something wrong, and this is why he's suffering. He's actually done everything right, at least as much as a human being can. He's done everything right, and yet he's still suffering. And so what we see in this book, the opening chapters, is Job's got three friends. If you're not familiar with the story of Job at all, very, very prominent businessman, successful um, very, very close in his relationship to God. He would intercede for his children on a daily basis. Go back and read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Job if you're not familiar with that story. It kind of lays out really everything you need to know. I don't want to go back and recover all of that. But in the midst of all that, serious catastrophe comes on Job. 
And we find out that it's not because he has done anything wrong, but precisely because God knows that Job is going to be able to handle this. Not only that, but God is going to elevate Job to this place where he wouldn't go on his own without this prompting, without the reason to have to press into God, have to seek out and cry out for God like he's doing. Without that, he may not have. And he was doing okay before. God just knows there's so much more in him, and that's why these things are coming his way. So let's get into the story. Got a lot to cover. If you are new here, I want to, again, just kind of warn you, we use our Bibles a lot here. We go through a lot of Scripture here, maybe more than you might be used to in some cases. But I believe the Word of God does a great job speaking for itself. And a pastor, a teacher, really, we can only mess it up. (laughs) It speaks for itself. But I try to take the stories and the things that are taught in Scripture and make it come alive, make it make sense, so to speak. So that's what I'm trying to do through this story of Job. Let's go back. I want to just recap where we are a little bit in the last few chapters. So the first several chapters of Job was Job going through this horrible suffering, and then his friends, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They travel from afar, from wherever they are. They're well off. They've got lives of their own, but they come to this place to comfort their friend Job. But when they get there, they find out one thing right away is that what's going on with Job doesn't fit their idea of why a human being suffers. Remember, they're Their whole paradigm in life is that if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. And so they are in this place where Job is saying, guys, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And they're saying, but you must have. Because that's all they know. They don't have any idea of grace. They don't have any idea of suffering being for anything other than the fact that you did something wrong to bring this upon you. So we spend the first, the first 26 chapters of Job's friends beating him up, essentially trying to get him to admit to a crime he didn't commit because they have to. They have to get him to admit because if he doesn't, then they go, well, then everything we've ever thought about how God works may be wrong. And nobody wants to examine their theology that closely, especially not have it be challenged these guys are no different. So they've been doing that. Then we get to this, what I called an, an interlude or kind of an intermission where Job basically, if this were a courtroom, it would be Job's final arguments where for a few chapters he gets out and he just says, look, this, this is where I stand. I plead my case before God. And now we're transitioning again. But let me go back and just recap a little bit of where we were before. So again, this kind of transitional between the back and forth with his friends And now we start to see this come to a resolution towards the end here. Job had fired back at his friends. Remember, when they were done speaking, he came out, Job 26, 1 and 2, he says, Then Job responded, What a help you are to the weak. Remember that? And then he goes on saying, Hey, you're great, fantastic wisdom. I sure appreciate it. Didn't do me any good whatsoever. Just pure sarcasm from Job. What a help you are. See, Job has gone from the, the... this high place of experiencing God in his life, of knowing God's presence, hearing his direction. Just It it wasn't unusual for Job to, to hear God's voice, know his leading, and to know that he was right where he needed to be. But now all of a sudden, things have gone silent through reasons that Job doesn't know. He's not aware of this, 
But all of a sudden now he's living his life without any sensing of God's presence. And more so than losing his income, even losing his children, losing his health, all of which are terrible things that that came upon Job. But more than that, he just grieves to his core the fact that his relationship with God seems to have disappeared, and he has no idea why. So he's trying to reconcile this while still holding on to his faith in God, reconcile, but then why did this happen? And my friends are saying it's because I was evil, but I know I'm not evil, but I haven't heard God, and as far as I know, that only happens if you do bad things. He's struggling back and forth. This is kind of what Job's going through. Then we see in chapter 30, we talked about it last week, Job Chapter 30 was broken into two parts. The first half of chapter 30 is basically Job lamenting how far he has fallen in his status, if you will, lack of a better word. He's basically saying, no, I had status, I had wealth, I was important, people listened to me. Job 30, verses 9 and 10. Then he says, and now I have become their taunt, and I have become a byword to them. They loathe me and stand aloof from me, and they do not refrain from spitting in my face. He was saying, I, I was the man. People looked up to me. People grew silent when I walked into a room. They all wanted my opinion. They all wanted my blessing on them. But now, look where I am. Got nothing. I've fallen so far. Then, the second half of chapter 30, he starts lamenting how far he has fallen out of favor, or at least fallen from the presence of God. He spends the rest of chapter 30 doing that. Job 30, 16. I think we got it on the screen. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of misery have seized me. And these days of misery, again, he's sitting on a trash heap covered in boils and sores and itching. And it's terrible. But his biggest misery is that he hasn't heard from God. Doesn't even sense his presence. And that's crushing him to his core. Then, We're going to chapter 31. So after this, basically saying, hey, I was the man. People looked up to me. I was was it, man. Then he goes into chapter 31 where he gives this kind of final declaration of innocence and basically one final stab at declaring how righteous he is. It's like, just in in case you guys have forgotten, here's all the things that I have done. Job 31 goes through all this. So verse 1, Job is denied lust. Verses 5 and 6, he's walked with integrity. Verses 9 and 10, he's kept away from adultery. Job uh, 31, 13 and 15, he's treated others with humility and respect. Verse 16, he's helped the poor and the widows and the orphans. Verse 24 and 25, he's avoided greed and the love of money. Verse 26, idolatry, he's avoided that astrological worship of the sun and the moon. He's avoided those things. 29 and 30, he's been quick to forgive and rejected bitterness in his heart. Verse 31, 32, he's practiced hospitality to strangers. 33, he was quick to repent of sin. 38 to 40, he's made a habit of good stewardship and treating his employees well, good business ethics. He essentially has just listed all the things that make him a righteous person. He spends all his time doing that and then ends at the last, the last words of, of that chapter. The words of Job are ended, where he basically says, okay, here's all this. I was great, had great status. People cared about me. I did all these things I was supposed to do. Remember, in his society, 
That's all he had to do. He had a list of things he was supposed to do, at least a list in his mind. Even the old covenant and the law wasn't given to Moses yet at that point. So he just had this understanding of how he should live his life. And he's going, I did that. I did all these things. And I had it going on. Now we enter a new chapter, both literally and figuratively, in the life of Job as we go into chapter 32. Chapter 32 starts out with this, 32 verse 1. Then these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, if this were just a story that somebody wrote, they might go, okay, we're done. They've gone through all that. Job has answered them. Now, conclusion. What's the final chapter in this story? But there's more that we go through this. See, Job's three friends, they had nothing left to say. They were done. But we find out as we go into this next chapter, we find out that the speeches, the back and forth, was too much for one bystander to take. Enter into the story here a young man named Elihu. E-L-I-H-U. His name is Elihu. Here's a, a, just a drawing, kind of a picture of what they think Elihu might have looked like. Over on the left, we've got Job's three buddies. They're sitting there. They're basically spent. They're like, I, we've said everything, done everything we can. He ain't listening to us. He's over, Job's over here on the right, miserable. And then this guy Elihu pops in, and he's like, let me tell you how it is. Let's talk about Elihu a little bit, though. First of all, it looks like all along in this story, there's been more than just Job's three friends and Job out there at the trash heap, ash heap outside of town. We know from last week when we talked about it that oftentimes there were whole societies of people who lived in the garbage heaps outside of town. That's how they lived. So we know there were other people present, but even in this story, this little group of people who were talking to Job, there was more than just the three of them. We find out there was this guy named Elihu listening all the time. Quick side note on that. A lot of people will look at scriptures like that or say, for example, in the gospel accounts of the women going to the tomb to find the empty tomb when Jesus was resurrected. When we we read those accounts, in one account it says there was one person, one woman. In another one it lists a couple. In another one it says a couple different ones, but then, and others. And so people look at those and they consider them inconsistencies. And they might say, since this says that, well, what was it? Was it just Mary? Was it this? Or was it who, who all was there? It's not an inconsistency for a story to focus on a particular person and not make mention of the other people that are there. It's not an inconsistency, although some some would say flatly that that invalidates the story because where did this guy come from? Therefore, I can't believe any of it. It's It's not true, but it is focusing very much on Elihu at this point where he was just standing by. So let's get into the scripture, Job 32, 2, the next thing, but... The anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. So first of all, anytime you see in Scripture where it says things like Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, it's laying out a genealogy there. It's essentially using this to say, look, this was a real guy from a real place, places that you can trace. Now, it was 4,000 years ago. So it's hard to trace the actual lineage, especially since it doesn't go into that anymore. But many, many scriptures document kind of the area and the 
places that this guy Elihu might have been from. Now, <clears throat> where it says the anger burned against Job, Job wasn't wrong. Remember, Job wasn't really wrong in the things he said, but Elihu's mad because he's justifying himself. God had already spoken separately. They weren't aware of it, but God had already declared Job to be righteous. And yet Job spends all this time just going, look how righteous I am. And that just makes Elihu, he's like, why are you talking about how righteous you are? How many of us know anytime you have to tell people how good you are, you're probably not as good as you think? But that's where, that's where Elihu just gets so mad over this. Now his name, a little bit about Elihu, again, seemingly comes out of nowhere. His name literally in the old Hebrew means, he is my God. It's very possible when you start tracing his, his genealogy and his lineage and where he's from and everything, and we won't go into that. That's kind of fun. Study that on your own if you want to. But it's very possible that he was a relative of Abraham's brother, Nahor, because you see in Scripture, Genesis, Jeremiah, Ruth, all kind of talk about these places and these people and where they intersect. And if you really do some detective work there, you can see it's very possible. Now, remember, Abraham although after Job can be dated to within a generation, depending on the method you use to study. So they were very close. It's possible that there were some relatives and back and forth in there. So we don't know for sure. We do know he was a real person. Here's the bigger question that I have, though. The bigger question I have, and maybe it's yours, why do we need yet another speech from yet another accuser? Anybody thinking that? Like, I thought we were done. The first three guys are done. They, they walked out and said, we, we got nothing to say. Can't we just be done now? Why do we need another guy? And by definition, then, the thought should be, why does the content in, Job, in Elihu's speech matter? Or what can it teach us? See, every word in Scripture is... God breathed and useful. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that. All scripture is inspired by God. Beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. So there's two possible answers to that question. What does the content in Elihu's speech teach us that we haven't already heard? Number one, the answer could be nothing. Nothing. Just a repeat of everything, rehash of everything we've already heard. Or it could be there's a lot. I believe that there's a lot. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that's there just to, let's just repeat that to make filler. This isn't a college essay where you have to have six pages, so you're repeating the same ideas until you get up to your word count. This is inspired by God, and it's there for a reason. So let's look at that reason why this whole section from Elihu is here. Elihu gets a lot of airtime. Elihu gets a lot of chapters, a lot of space here to say his piece. There's got to be a reason. So let's go back and let's look. Job chapter 31. Remember what Job was saying in chapter 31. So Job 31, 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Here's my signature. It just means I've said my piece. I'm signing my name to my statement. Let God judge me. He's literally just pleading like, you guys, I no longer care what you three friends of mine have said. I just... I wish God was here to judge me because he would judge me fairly. He's pleading. He's literally begging for that. So that's where he is. And I believe that Elihu, 
is responding because God sent him. Again, in answer to Job's cry, oh, that the Almighty might answer me. Now, we know from this setup that God himself can't speak to Job. That's part of his deal with the devil. But that doesn't mean he can't send Elihu. I think God is sending Elihu to speak to Job. Now, in response to Elihu, some people, there's a lot of theories about Elihu. Let me just really quickly outline a couple of them here. First of all, some believe he's just this brash, kind of abrasive brat of a guy just repeating what's already been said, just repeating it again, just, for, just to fill space. Some people think that. And one of their things that they point to as evidence is the fact that we'll see later, nobody responds back or really even acknowledges Elihu after he gives this big, long speech that he's about to give. So we know that there was back and forth between Job and each one of his friends. At the end, God acknowledges Job's friends and Job. So all these people are kind of acknowledging one another. But Elihu seems to come in from nowhere and then just as quickly disappears into nowhere. <clears throat> so some, some people think there really isn't any substance in what Elihu says. Now, another theory, some believe that Elihu is actually a type of Satan. Remember that the idea of a type or a type or a shadow is something in Scripture that is meant to either remind us or kind of prepare us for something else. It's something that looks a little bit like something that we're supposed to know, but we don't quite have all the information, so it's just kind of, just kind of as, as a foreshadowing of, if you will. And some believe that Elihu is that type of Satan because what Elihu says, it kind of hurts Job. It's, it's to the point some people say it's even kind of mean the way he says it, and, and it just, it really kind of continues to hammer away at Job, but for a different way, a different way, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about here in just a minute. There's yet another school of thought or a theory out there that these six chapters of Elihu don't even belong there, that they do, they're not written by Job, they're not written by anybody at the time. In fact, that they were written by somebody else entirely and just planted there in Scripture much later. There are many people who believe that. I don't believe there's anything that accidentally or wrongly finds its way into Scripture. I believe when it says all Scripture is God-breathed, if it's in there, if God ordained it to be in His Word, it's there for a reason. It's not an accident. And it wasn't put in there later by somebody else mistakenly. But there are people who believe that. Well-studied scholars. So if that's you... It's definitely something that you can look at and prove. That's not how I believe, though. And here's why. I think it makes sense. If you just read that in isolation, you might go, eh, why? It doesn't look like it belongs there. The, the language is a little bit different. The, the things that he says are a little bit different than the other friends would. Even, even the words that he uses are not words that Job would have used. It's all just a little bit different. And I think that makes, to me, that makes total sense. If Elihu came in from somewhere else, and the land that it says he's from is actually in Arabia, so if he comes from this distance, he'll probably speak a little differently. And if you're being accurate in the way that you write down what was said and how it was said, it's going to be different than how you speak necessarily. So I think that makes perfect sense. But even more than that, if we go back again to chapter 31, remember I said at the beginning, the first half of 31 is Job lamenting how far he's fallen in the eyes of man. 
The second half of 31 is how far Job has fallen from God. And he's lamenting that. So if we look at the next two sections in this book, Elihu, his speech answers Job essentially from the human perspective. Here's the human perspective on what you're going through. And then when Elihu is finished and steps out, we hear from God, and God gives his final judgment. So following that outline of chapter 31, the first half is man's judgment, second half God's judgment. We see that with Elihu and then God coming in. I think it makes total sense if you follow that. This guy, Elihu, again, he seemingly comes out of nowhere, gives a longer speech than all the rest, and then disappears without another mention. I think it seems really odd on the surface until you realize that Elihu is very much a type of Jesus. Elihu is very much a foreshadowing of Jesus. And the reason I say that is because Elihu is to Job here a mediator. A mediator, I believe, sent by God to help prepare Job's heart. Because Job was He's being worked on. He was being worked over. He was being refined. There was a lot going on in Job, but he wasn't quite there. And I think that God sent Elihu to help do that final bit of preparation in order for Job to receive the blessing that God has waiting for him. And God, you can see, just sitting back going, Job, finish well. Finish well. What you're doing, I see where you are. I know it hurts. I know, I know it's tough, but Job, finish finish well, and I've got all this for you. And I think he's sending Elihu to just kind of help, help stiffen him and get him to that place where he's ready to go. So then remember back, all the way back to chapter 9, like, seems like years ago, Job 9.33, Job said, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. I think this is God sending that mediator in the form of Elihu, somebody that'll be kind of that go-between right here and not just a, a straight accuser. This just shows me that God will answer our cries, our pleas in ways that we don't often expect. So stay with me. We're going to go into chapter 32 now. We're going to unravel this guy that is Elihu. There are several chapters. Again, we're going to focus on 32 and kind of lay in the groundwork, and then we'll, we'll, we'll bundle some of the next chapters together and finish those up in the next couple weeks, but Elihu is such an amazing story, so stick with me here. Job 32, verse 3. Again, talking about Elihu. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer, yet they condemned Job. So his anger burned, so Elihu is mad. Remember, at first he was mad at Job because he was declaring himself to be righteous. Now he's mad at his friends because they're condemning Job, but there's no evidence. Like, they couldn't prove anything, and yet they still are condemning him. Founding him, finding him guilty despite lack of evidence. Proverbs 11.9 says, with his mouth, the godless person destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be rescued. Proverbs 19.9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and one who declares lies will perish. That's what these guys are doing to Job. They're not necessarily speaking falsehoods, It's just not truth. Remember I talked about the difference between a fact. A fact is just a blunt instrument that can be manipulated, and it's not always truth. And that's what they're finding here. So Job 32, 4 and 5. Now, Elihu had waited 
to speak to Job because they were years older than he. But when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Again, anger issues. Maybe he needed some counseling for his anger issues. But the thing is, I think this is more righteous anger. Nothing's been done to Elihu. He's listened to these men speak wrong about Job. He's listened to, wrong, to Job, in some cases, speak wrongly about God. And I think this is more of a righteous anger, as close to as a human can get to doing that. And it's culturally proper, by the way, for him, Elihu, being the youngest, to wait, to let the older men speak their speak their, their thoughts however much they wanted to do. We see that order when Job's friends talk. Um, Eliphaz, being the oldest, spoke first, then Bildad, and then Zophar, and they went in that pecking order of oldest to youngest, with the idea being that more wisdom was contained in the older. Job 32, 6 and 7. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Bazite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. Ideally, right? But that's not how it was working out. Job 32, 8. But it is a spirit in mankind and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. What are you saying right there? First of all, that word spirit is the same that we've used all the way back from Genesis when it said the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That word translates in the Hebrew as ruach, and it literally means the spirit or divine wind of God. And so Elihu here, what he's claiming, essentially he's saying divine inspiration. God gave me this. God sent me, and God is going to speak through me. And we're going to see, I believe, that's exactly what happens. Job 32, 9 through 12, I'll read it for you. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I, too, will tell what I think. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your skillful speech while you pondered what to say. I also paid close attention to you. But indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. I love, I love different translations are different. By the way, I use the New American Standard, NASB. I like the way that it translates and its accuracy. But some translations are different, especially in this old kind of Hebrew that Job was written in. Some translations say great men or old men instead of abundant in years. Being that I just had my 58th birthday, I like abundant in years rather than old men. I just like the way it translates better. Job 32, 13. So do not say we have found wisdom. God will defeat him, not man. So he's saying you guys can't come up with the answer. Don't even claim that you can. If he is to be found guilty, God will do it. That's exactly what Eliphaz is saying here, except he's going to, he's saying only God can know the truth. Unfortunately, that doesn't stop Elihu from trying. Now, a side note on this, Elihu, even though I contend that Elihu was sent from God, not an angel, but sent from God to speak to, to be that mediator for Job, he's not perfect. We'll see a couple times he says things that aren't entirely true. God uses imperfect vessels to get his message through. And he will do it however he has to. But in this case, he's using Elihu, who again is not perfect. We'll see that. But he does a pretty good job, and we'll talk about it in coming chapters. Job 32, 17, 18. 
I too will give my share of answers. I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. In other words, he's saying, I'm about to drop some knowledge on you. The spirit won't even let me hold it in. I have to get it out. You ready? You ready? Here it comes. Here it comes. He's all, okay, have a seat. Job 32, 19. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It's about to burst. You say, I, I can't even hold it in. This, this word, this message that the Spirit gave me, I can't even hold it in. You ready for it? Job 32, 20. Let me speak so that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Please answer already. We're ready. He's saying, are you ready for it? Here it comes. Get ready. Get ready. Job 32, 21, 22. Let me be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter. Otherwise, my maker would quickly take me away. He's saying, Job, I'm not going to blow smoke up your skirt, or God might strike me dead. You're ready for it? To which everybody's like, yes. Yes, Elihu, we're ready. Let's hear this wisdom that you have. Well, you don't get to hear it this week. You have to come back next week. That's actually the end of chapter 32. The next chapter, Elihu kind of continues that, saying, this is how great I am. God sent me. I've got a word for him. It's it's amazing. Job, this is going to blow your mind. It's going to bring truth to everything that you guys were saying. I've got this. God won't. And he just, you can just picture Job going, say it already. But he spends some time going back and forth. And there's reason for that too. And we'll talk about that next week. So that's the end of chapter 32. I want to put this together. I want it to make sense to you. And here's, after much prayer, writing this message, here's what God just really, really impressed on my heart. Number one, we know, if you've been following along, the book of Job is full of types and shadows of Jesus Christ to come. Okay, the the book of Job doesn't just stand alone and it makes no reference. Jesus is a thread, a redeemer, all the way through the book of Job. We see it in every single chapter, and, and Job is just full of it. Full of, not full of it. I don't know what you think by it. Types and shadows and allusions to Jesus. We see this. Jesus was a mediator sent to a desperate people that so much needed him in order to help prepare their hearts for the blessing that God had for them. That's what we see with Elihu. Elihu is this shadow, this type of Jesus sent to Job to help him. Basically to help him get over that hump, if you will. He was, he was being refined. He was working off these things. He was working on pride. God was working that through him, but he wasn't quite there. And in order for the blessing that God had waiting, you know God's just sitting there going, come on, Job, hang on just a little more. And I've got this for you. But he sent Elihu to help him through that. Here's another, just a practical thing. I think that in his pain, Job would have had a hard time hearing the truth from his friends anyway. How many of you know that sometimes those who are closest to us, while maybe they contain a lot of wisdom, they can speak truth, since they're so close, it's hard to hear them. Sometimes it's hard to accept that wisdom from them. We see it all the time. Job's friends, they knew him well. They did business with him. He knew them. So even if they spoke good truth to him, 
he might have a hard time because he's like, I know who you are, and you know who I am, so the things they say are colored through that. So often when we have somebody that's that close to us, they can say great wisdom, but we don't receive it. Hearing it from someone who has no, no skin in the game, if you will, no preconceived notions, seems to carry more weight. We see it, even Jesus said that. Mark 6, 4, remember Jesus said, after being basically railroaded out of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. In other words, they knew him too well. Like, Jesus, weren't you the son of, and didn't you, you know, they probably saw him running around town in a diaper as a child. How hard is it to take wisdom from somebody like that? That's what we see happening here, I think. And Elihu comes out of nowhere and might be just an impartial opinion that Job can receive better. See, God had stopped talking to Job, but he could send Elihu. I think that's exactly what's going on here. One reason I know that, or I believe that, is because Elihu corrects Job not for a list of imaginary sins like his friends had done. Remember the three friends? They kept listing off. If you're, if you're struggling it's, or suffering, it's because you must have done this or this or this or this. And they keep going down the line and they say, I know you're saying you didn't do that, but that's the only reason you would be suffering is if you did this. And they just keep going back and forth. Elihu, on the other hand, corrects Job only for things that God would care about, meaning his pridefulness not these imaginary list of sins that didn't happen. See, Elihu was angry not because he had been wronged, but because God had been, because Job and his friends were not speaking correctly of God. And see, Job's sins were not what his friends were accusing him of. What was Job's sin at this point? Job's sin was this pridefulness that was rising up within him. Elihu much like Jesus, doesn't care a bit about these things in Job's past. Whether he even did them or not, doesn't care about him. Elihu cares how Job is handling himself today. Elihu didn't care about Job's past. Didn't, maybe he didn't even know. All maybe Elihu knew, and we don't know from Scripture, so I'm just inferring this. All we know that Elihu knew is that he said, I've been sitting here listening to you talk and to them talk. And the way I see you answering their accusations is not how God would want you to be. He feels that prideness rising up inside of Job. He doesn't address, he doesn't know anything that Job did in the past. He's only concerned with his present. And how Job is handling his today is what Elihu is addressing here. See, Job's, Job's refining process is getting near an end, but he's got to receive correction or he won't be ready to receive that blessing. And that's an exact shadow of Jesus. Jesus does not care about your past sins. He doesn't care about your yesterday, your last week, or your last year, or your lifetime, everything up until today. What he cares about is your today. He cares about how you handle the things that come your way today, because he took care of the rest for you. The problem is so many of us want to live in that place of trying to repent for, atone for, hide from, make excuses for our yesterday instead of walking in today 
And just like Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, accusing you again and again and again of things that you may or may not have done, and yet Job is sitting there just taking this beating. And he knows in his heart he didn't do these things. I don't know how many of us could be as certain as he was that we were living that blameless life, but the enemy wants to keep you in that place. Paul, think about the Apostle Paul. Think about if Jesus would have met Paul on that road and said, you know, you have all the things that I can use to further my message, to be a great apostle for me, but I don't know, man. That guy you were before, that was a bad dude. Let's sit and talk about all the things that you had done up to today. Let's talk about have you relive and repent of all of those things that you said wrong, did wrong, your life, everything up until this moment. What if he did that? We'd still be here because as we know from Paul's life, everything up until that encounter with Jesus was not the way Jesus would have had him live it. He had a lot to repent of, but Jesus never said, okay, before I can use you, let's talk about your past. Never. You know who does that? The enemy does that. The enemy does that. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he wrote the letter to the church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does he mean when he says old things? It means everything from right now, prior. Everything that's in the rearview mirror in your life needs to stay there because it's all new now. Job's three friends continue to hammer away at him for his past sins, and and he refuses to admit them. Elihu, on the other hand, is bringing correction and truth about how Job is responding to what's coming his way. Because that's the only thing that we can do. When life comes our way, when the trials come our way, when, when stumbles and temptations and things come our way, we can't change how we handled them in the past. We can change how we handle them today, right now. And that's what Jesus wants from us. And by doing that, by handling those things correctly, that paves the way for God's redemption. So the question then is, are you spending your days? Who here, rhetorical question out there online, you don't have to answer me, but think about this. How much of your day do you spend living either atoning for, making excuses for, or hiding from the sins of your past? Because that's where the enemy wants you to spend your time and your energy. You can wear those things like a crown of thorns that you were never meant to wear. Or you can instead wear the crown of righteousness that is promised to those who accept Jesus and await his coming. We're promised that. The crown of righteousness, not a crown of thorns, but the enemy wants to say, yeah, you are so far from ready to accept that crown of righteousness. Why don't you come over here and deal with your thorns for a while? That's not where God has us. And in order to receive the redemption in Jesus, we have to let go of the anchor of the past. Get this. Through Jesus Christ, if you've given your heart to him, he is your Lord and Savior. Scripture says you are saved, meaning you have eternal life in heaven with him. 
But what about the here and now? What about being able to be used for God's purposes, to glorify him in your life, and by that, have others see how wonderful the gospel message of Jesus Christ is? If you're dragging along a bag full of your past, are you any good to move forward into what God has for you? We are told, let go of that anchor. Let go of it. It doesn't matter. If he didn't hit Paul on his past, he's not going to hit you on your past. He just wants to walk forward with you. So my question, the last thing, and wrap up this message with this, and it's questions for you. Who here or out there online is carrying baggage that is not yours to carry? Think about that. I can't answer that for you. Only the Holy Spirit can. Then the second question, who's tired of carrying that baggage? Who's tired of having to make excuses or, or hide things in your past? Make excuses for who you are and how you got here. Who's tired of trying to atone for sins of the past when we can't do that? We can't do that. And then the last question, who would like to lay it down? at the foot of the cross? Who would like to take that baggage that you're living with, dragging around with you like an anchor and lay it at the foot of the cross and put it where it belongs? I know I would. So I'm gonna pray in closing. I want you to do this. As I pray in closing, I want you not to just repeat the words that I say. Seek God's heart for this and have him show you those things that maybe have been holding you back, maybe things you weren't even aware of. In, in Christianese, we call those strongholds. Things that you're wearing as a part of you that don't even belong there. A filter, a lens that you see your life through, you see yourself through, that the enemy has put there, and it's not what Jesus Christ has for you. We call those strongholds, and the power of the gospel has the power to break strongholds. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we are so grateful that you send your son Jesus for us to reconcile us to you, to make atonement for our sins of our past, to make atonement for the sins that we will commit tomorrow, that we will do today. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, we are made anew again every day. And we don't have to walk in that baggage, but Lord, I want to repent of the things that I'm carrying with me. I want to repent of that baggage that I'm trying to atone for or, or hide that are in my past that keep me from the fullness of what you have for me. For the fullness of being able to be used by you in your kingdom for your purposes and to bring you glory. So Lord, if there is anything that I am not seeing anything I am carrying with me that you want me to lay at the foot of the cross, Lord, show it to me now. Take it from me. I wasn't designed to carry it. I am not equipped to carry it, but you are. You can take it. You have taken it. So, Lord, let me let go of it. Give it to you. And let me walk forward into the light and glorify you in everything I do. Father, I love you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together now. If you're out there online, wherever you are, grab supplies, grab something that represents the body of Christ, something that represents the blood. If you're here in-house, we have the single-serve cups on the table in the back. You can grab one of those. We are very soon going to resume serving actual communion up front here. I'm so looking forward to that. But let's take communion together. Communion is a, it's not just a celebration. It's an acknowledgement of what Jesus did. But if we acknowledge the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross every week, every day, 10 times a day, if we acknowledge it, but we don't live our lives like it mattered, then why do we do it? It's a gift that was given to you. Jesus gave his body on the cross to be broken for you in your place. And by accepting that body, we accept his sacrifice and we agree we will live our lives acknowledging that sacrifice. Take the body. The blood of Christ is, as Jesus said, the blood of the new covenant. Job didn't have Job didn't have any covenant. He had a sacrificial system. I have to do the right things the right way at the right time or else. And he just had to guess at what they were. We have the new covenant of Christ. It's not about what we do. Thank God it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about accepting that Jesus did it. If you accept that, take the blood. We have prayer team here in-house. If you want somebody to pray with you, we have them in the back. Look for the lanyard. If you have a burden, something that you want to lay down, they can pray that through with you. Or even simpler, we have the crosses. And by the crosses are little note cards. If you have a burden, something that you want to just let go of and leave it there, pin it to the cross and leave it there. Our prayer team will grab it. We will pray over those, and we will destroy it just like Jesus does. If you're out there online, you can comment any of the chat boards, and we will pray for those things for you as well. There is power in prayer. It's only when we isolate ourselves that the enemy can sit and hammer away and lie at you. You need someone to agree with you, and that's what prayer is. It's just talking to God. Let's take advantage of that as we worship with the team. Amen? Thank you, guys.